Well, good morning. We are going to be looking at Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. But before we look at the passage, I want to tell you a story about my father-in-law. He has this philosophy about pumpkin cookies. That's right, pumpkin cookies. That's exactly how he says it to me every fall when he makes a batch of these. And his philosophy is that no matter what the recipe calls for on the amount of pumpkin, you have to triple it. Otherwise, they're just oatmeal cookies or chocolate chip cookies. You, you can't even taste the pumpkin. So that's his philosophy. And I remember it was probably two years ago, about Thanksgiving time, Danae and I were home in Michigan, and Danae decides to make a batch of pumpkin cookies. But to her dad's chagrin, there wasn't enough pumpkin in the house to make them the right way. So he decides to go to the store, grabs another, probably enough pumpkin to make like six dozen cookies, way too much. And he proceeds to make the world's best pumpkin cookies. So he grabs one bowl and he puts the dry ingredients in there. The the flour, the baking soda, baking powder, salt, maybe a little cinnamon. Kind of folds that together, makes sure it's mixed well, sets it aside. Grabs a mixing bowl. And that's where the sugar goes, the vanilla, the butter, the eggs. And of course, you guessed it, the pumpkin. All three cans of it or whatever. It's way, way too much in my opinion. And you can't just mix it with your typical kitchen mixer either. So he goes out to the garage, grabs a drill, puts a concrete mixer on the end of it, and he starts mixing this pumpkin together. It's way too thick. I mean, if you've ever made a pumpkin pie, you know what you're dealing with. But that's how you make the world's best pumpkin cookies. You have to mix all of that together so that it's unified and that each ingredient mixes together so that at the end, you've got pumpkin cookies, at least according to my father-in-law. This, a recipe like this one, is a picture of unity in the body of Christ. We, the body of Christ, display unity to the world through the diversity of our gifts. That's what we're going to see in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. So if you'll turn there, let's read the passage together. Ephesians 4 Verses 1 through 16, it's on page 977 of the Pew Bible, starting in verse 1. I, therefore, this is Paul speaking, I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. 
In saying that he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, namely the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this text in Ephesians chapter 4, I pray that we would see the unity of the body, the body of Christ, your church, and that we would know that we are that body of Christ. And as individual members, Lord, we have been gifted through your Son, so that we might use those gifts to equip your body and do the work you've called us to. Speak through me this morning, Lord, so that we would know that truth more deeply. And any fears or concerns or guilt that we bear, that we would lay it at your feet. that we would not quench the Spirit, but instead, as we have worshipped you this morning, that we are strengthened by him. We have power through your Spirit to do all that you ask. Help us to see that this morning in your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now here in Ephesians chapter 4, there's a transition from the first half of the book to the second half of the book. In the first half, we really saw our divine reality, and now we are moving to our earthly responsibility. In the first half, there's a lot of words that were statements or indicatives of who we were and are in Christ. And now in the latter half, chapters four through six, we see commands or imperatives of how we are to act as a result of who we are in Christ. In fact, as we look at some of the words in the first half of the book, look at some of these things that Christ has done for us, as well as the things which we now have in Christ. Chapter 1, verse 3, he has blessed us in Christ. Verse 4, he chose us in him. Verse 5, he predestined us. Verse 8, he lavished upon us 
in all wisdom and insight. Or go to chapter 2. Look at verse 5. He made us alive together with Christ. Verse 6. He raised us up. He seated us. Or even verse 14. He made the two one. Talking about Jews and Gentiles becoming one body. These are the statements of who we are in Christ because of what he's done. But then you can also look at what we now have, the blessings and the benefits that we have in him. Going back to chapter 1, verse 7, we have redemption. Verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 13, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Or in chapter 2, going to verse 18, we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. Or chapter 3, we have boldness and access with Christ. These are statements of who we are in Christ. Then you move to chapters 4 through 6, and it's not that the statements go away, but now we start to see the commands that Paul is giving us because of who we are in Christ. Right away, in verse 1 of chapter 4, we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Verse 3, we are to maintain the unity. Verse 12, we are to equip the body. Verse 17, we are no longer to walk as the Gentiles. Or 22, we are to put off the old self so we can put on the new self. You can go to chapters 5 and 6 where you see the household code, and it talks about Wives, submit to your husbands, or husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Slaves, obey your masters, and masters, do the same. There's a lot of commands or imperatives of how we are to respond. What is our responsibility? Because of who we are in Christ. So going back now to chapter 4, Verse 1, it does say that we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. When it talks about walk here, it's not just putting one foot in front of the other. No, it's more about our lifestyle, the way in which we live. It's going to be our comings and goings, yes, but it's going to be our attitudes, our thoughts, our speech, our actions. So when we walk, it's supposed to have a wholeness of who we are. This is Paul's exhortation to unity, that we are to walk in it. And so we see that the exhortation includes four graces in verse 2. We see humility, gentleness, patience, and loving forbearance in verse 2. These four graces, if you think about their opposites, are things like pride or harshness, being impatient or being bitter about circumstances. These graces really talk about our relationships with one another. So the picture of unity, a display of unity, is a relational one. It's how do we get along with each other in the body of Christ. Let's look at each one. Humility, 
is putting another person before yourself and thinking about their own needs. Gentleness is also being sensitive to what that individual might need. Or patience is waiting on somebody else before maybe speaking or acting. And loving forbearance shoulders grievances by caring for one another when they're in pain or hurt and releasing them from any return or obligation. They resemble the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, where Paul also says, walk by the Spirit. But what does Paul mean in verse 3 when he says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? I think he means that we need to have a desire, a longing to display that unity to the world. And it's a unity that we're maintaining. We didn't create it. Rather, it's the Spirit of God that created a unity among us. Remember, he reconciled us. Chapter 2, where it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not a result of what we've done. Rather, the Spirit has created that in us, and we are now to maintain that through a visible display of unity. Going back right to those graces that we've talked about. Humility, patience, gentleness, and forbearance. And so, in other words, what does this mean? It means be who you are. Church, if Christ has done this in us and we are now unified as the body of Christ, we just simply have to be who we are. This is a little different than be yourself. Um, I was thinking about some Disney flicks and their worldviews are often a little askew and yet they can teach biblical truth. But Aladdin probably falls short on this one. I think of the scene where the genie turns into a bumblebee and he just tells Aladdin, be yourself. Well, Aladdin was lying about his identity to Jasmine. But even if he did be himself, it would be based on his life of crime and lies and sin. You see, Aladdin hasn't had a transformative work of the Spirit, and so being himself isn't necessarily much better. Maybe a better picture, though, is in The Lion King. This is probably one of my favorite Disney movies of all time. And the particular scene that I'm going to tell you about, I remember just getting goosebumps watching it. Um, I really loved it. It's when Rafiki goes and finds Simba out in the far-off jungle and says that, your father, Mufasa, is still alive. Of course, Simba doesn't believe that. But yet he still follows Rafiki out of curiosity, and they go to that secluded pool, and Rafiki says, look down there. Simba looks and says, it's just my reflection. It's not my father. And Rafiki says, look harder. He lives in you. And of course, that's when the memory of Mufasa appears in the sky. And this is what Mufasa says to his son, you have forgotten me. You have forgotten who you are and so have forgotten me. You are more than you have become. Remember who you are. 
You are my son and the one true king. Remember who you are. Again, the worldview of the Lion King, circle of life and things like that, it's not a biblical worldview. And yet the exhortation that we get here to remember who you are is one that Paul is giving right here. That we have a responsibility to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And just like Simba was given an identity by his father, and thus he acts on it, he goes back to Pride Rock and reclaims his kingdom, so too do we have an identity from the Spirit that we are unified in Christ so that we can demonstrate that unity to the world. This exhortation of unity is also developed further by Paul on a sevenfold description of certain elements that are the foundation of our unity. Look at verses 4 through 6. There is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. It's interesting as you look at this list of seven ones, and you'll see that two of them actually get additional comment, is Paul has a little more to say about two of them. And one is our hope that belongs to our call. I think he's connecting it back to verse one when it talks about walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It's a call that the Spirit has given to us. Sometimes it's a still, soft whisper. But how do we hear that call? Well, it's by reading God's Word, meditating on it, prayer and fasting, as well as just waiting on the Lord to speak to you. I think that's important as we think about unity, is that, again, the Spirit is the glue that is going to hold us together. But then the second one that gets additional comment is one God and Father of all. It says, He is over all, through all, and in all. I think this is tying the entire list together to say that the point of unity, as I've already been saying, is that it's a display for the world. Is that God fills the world through His Spirit, and His Spirit lives in us, the church. We, church, are supposed to be that display. We are the vehicle that God uses to be in the world and through the world and over the world. Thus, we have a responsibility to be involved in that. I find it amazing how God has used this picture of unity in many places in the world. We can think of the animal kingdom in which we see how an ant colony works together to build its home. Or a flock of geese are going to fly in V formation. Or even how a school of fish just swims in the ocean. There's so many different pictures of unity in the animal kingdom. But you can also look at science and things such as how ecosystems work. There's a beautiful unity in how God created his creation or a process like photosynthesis and how that works together. There's a unity there. 
Even music, as we sung this morning, there was melody and harmony that brings the music together to a beautiful unity. Yet in human institutions, we often see brokenness. They're fractured. They're divisive. We can go back to those graces and their opposites. Humans are prone to be proud, to be divisive, to be impatient with one another. I'm sure you can even think of times this week, I know I can, in which I was not living out those graces in, chapter, in verse 2. We even can think about the recent events in Charlottesville, an ugly display of division in our world. Sin divides us from each other, and it destroys unity. But sin also divides us from God, separates us from him. And so thinking back to those statements of who we are in Christ, in chapter 2, he's redeemed us, disobedient sinners, so that we can be a beacon of hope and light to the world. The body of Christ, again, demonstrates, it displays unity to the world. If you don't know Christ this morning, I hope that you've come here to see a beautiful picture of unity and that you see something that says, this is better than what the world has to offer. Come to Christ and find peace and purpose. But how do we do this? You might be thinking, okay, we've talked a lot about statements, who we are in Christ, but you're wondering, how can we really be unified? Yeah, we talked about those graces, and Paul exhorted us to that. We saw the foundation of one baptism, one Lord, one God. But how do we demonstrate unity to the world? I think that's why Paul talks about our giftedness in Christ. Let's look at verses 7 through 11. But grace was given to each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, namely the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. Admittedly, this is a confusing and controversial section of Ephesians chapter 4. It's difficult to understand what, what is Paul talking about. He quotes from Psalm 68, um, but it's kind of a paraphrase. He doesn't quote it exactly. And then he talks about being the one who ascended, but also the one who descended. I think the context of verse 7 and 11 kind of helps us interpret it a little bit. Is verse 7 talks about Christ's gift, and then verse 11 talks about our gifts, the ones that he's given to the church. So if that's the case, I think he's bringing up Psalm 68 because it was a picture of ancient Near East war customs that stipulated the victor, the winning party in a war, would 
lead captives as a tribute from the defeated enemy, and then those spoils would be divided among the winning side, the nation and the army. And this picture is one that is really establishing that Christ has divine authority to give gifts to men. What did Christ do? He died on the cross and he won over death. He led it as captive. And he is seated in the heavenly places. So he has divine authority to give us these gifts. He and no one else. And so the idea of ascending and descending is really just establishing that Christ is the victor. And not only did he have to come here as man to die in our place, but then he was also glorified to heaven. He is the authority who gives us these gifts. So how do we know what our gifts are? Do we use spiritual gift tests and inventories, those assessments, maybe you've taken them in a Sunday school class, or do we go to Bible college, get a degree, go to seminary? Does that tell us about our spiritual gifts? Or do we just listen to the praises and the compliments that we get from people that say, oh, you're good at that, and that's your spiritual gift? I think there's actually an element of truth in each one of these. But I think if we look at what Paul was saying in verses 1 through 3, he's going to give us a slightly different approach to discerning our spiritual gifts. First, he talked about our calling to which we've been called. We need to submit to God. And we need to listen for what he's telling you your gift is. And you do that by walking in obedience. As you walk in obedience, he will tell you what your gift is. Secondly, We've got those four graces, humility, gentleness, patience, loving forbearance. Again, this talks about community. And so there is affirmation from other godly people in our lives that say, yes, you are good at this, and God has given you that gift. And then thirdly, we are eager to maintain the unity. Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's a eagerness, there's a joy, there's a pleasure that we get in using our gifts. Why? To maintain the unity that the Spirit has created. I think these three things can help us discern what our spiritual gifts are. And then Paul gives us a list. In one sense, this is kind of his recipe for determining our spiritual giftedness. He gives us those five here in Ephesians 4, apostleship, prophecy, evangelism, teaching, and pastoring. Our scripture reading that Sarah shared with us this morning was from 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that talked about some more spiritual gifts. You can even go to Romans chapter 12 as well and see even more and different ones. Aubrey Malfers is an author who's well known for writing books on Christian leadership, and he's Here's how he has summarized these three passages. He says the gifts are administration, apostleship, evangelism, encouragement, faith, giving, helps, leadership, mercy, pastor, and teacher. And what is the purpose of? of the spiritual gifts that Paul has listed here. 
Well, we can see in verse 12, they are given to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. Did you see in verse 12 that it said to equip the saints for the work of ministry? What does that tell us about our spiritual gifts? It tells us my spiritual gifts are not for me. They're not about me in the same way that your spiritual gifts are not for you. They're not about you. They're for the church. Your gift is to be a benefit to your brother and sister. And the five gifts that are mentioned here are specifically given so that those who are gifted in teaching or speaking or evangelism or leading would be equipping the body to use their gifts. Maybe it's service or helps or mercy. And that's how they work together. Is that you need to use your gifts for that. Let, let, let's go back to uh, my father-in-law's world's famous pumpkin cookies. He'll tell you the reason, and, I, and I've kind of hinted at this, that the reason you need to triple the pumpkin in the recipe is so they actually taste like pumpkin, right? But what would happen if he forgot the butter in the recipe? Just completely forgot it. Yeah, it wouldn't work out, would it? Or what if he accidentally swapped the sugar for salt? You want to eat those? I don't think so. Or maybe he just put a whole tablespoon of baking soda in rather than a teaspoon. You have to be a baker to really get that one, I think. You probably wouldn't want to eat my father-in-law's world's best pumpkin cookies because they might not even be edible. I think that's a picture, again, of unity in the body, is we need each ingredient in the right amount, mixed in the right way, if you're going to have good cookies, if you're going to eat them. It's the same way with the gifts in the body. You need the right gifts in the right amount, mixed in the right way, so that you can actually have unity and display that to the world. So as I talked about neglecting the butter or swapping one thing for another or maybe just confusing the amount, I think this is true of sometimes how we use our gifts or actually misuse our gifts. What if you neglected your giftedness? Well, that would be selfish. You'd be hoarding away God's goodness, and maybe that's out of fear or guilt. In this instance, we end up depriving our brothers and sisters of what God has blessed us with for their benefit. Again, it's not about me. It's not about you. For example, if God's people who are gifted with the gifts mentioned here in this passage, prophecy, evangelism, apostleship, teaching, and pastoring, if they misused or if they neglected their gifts, then the whole body would be missing out on hearing God's word. Because that's the focus of those gifts, to lead, to teach, and to preach God's word. But on the flip side, what if those of you who are gifted in 
mercy or giving or helps or encouragement weren't using your gifts. You're neglecting those. Then the body isn't being fed and supported. And so those who have the other gifts wouldn't have what they need to be able to teach and preach. They work together. And so if one is neglected, one ingredient is missing, it's to the detriment of the whole body. What if we abuse our giftedness? Well, I think this is when we're using a position of influence or manipulation for our own selfish gain, usually out of pride and arrogance. The usual critique of my father-in-law's cookies is that there's too much pumpkin. Is It totally overpowers the cookie, and you might as well just go grab a can of pumpkin and chug it down anyways. Well, that can be true too. If we're abusing our gifts, and there's a misuse, an overuse of them, then we're really focused on our own prestige, reputation, our own image, and it's for our own gain. Again, I've already said, it's not, a gift is not about you. It's not about how you're going to benefit from it. It's how you can use it to benefit your brothers and sisters. And so again, we've lost sight of the purpose in which Christ gave us gifts, to grow, to mature, and to equip the body for the work of ministry. And then the third one is, what if we misappropriate our gifts? What I mean by that is, what if we confuse our gift for a different one? Again, it's that whole, if you substitute sugar with salt, ain't nobody going to eat your cookies. This can be accidental or intentional. But I think it's still a problem and needs to be discerned. And so we have to go back to looking at verses 1 through 3, where it talks about how we can submit to God, receive affirmation from other godly individuals in our life, and discern the gifts that we find joy and pleasure in. As we learn what our gifts are by following Paul's example here, then we won't be confusing our gifts one for another. You know, I, I thought this is, this is where it gets difficult for me because I don't just want to give a blanket analogy that says, well, if you've got a gifted preacher who goes to the soup kitchen, everyone who gets a bowl of soup is out of there right away because they came for a free meal and not a free speech. That doesn't necessarily work because the Spirit might lead a gifted individual to go to a soup kitchen and preach so that people would hear his word. And that's where I think we have to go back to submission to God in making sure that the Spirit is leading us to use our gifts. But at the same time, if you keep trying to teach or preach and you can't do it very well and you stumble over your words, you may need to go back to asking God, is that a gift that I have? And do some soul searching. So we need to be careful that we don't confuse or misappropriate our gifts. Again, let's go back to that list that Paul gives us here. In Ephesians 4, he's saying these five gifts have a responsibility in affirming others of their giftedness. It's not just that they speak and teach and preach God's word and they lead in that, but really they also lead in affirming others to do the work of ministry. That's verse 12. These five gifts are given so that they can equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so they have a responsibility At the same time, other gifts, such as 
encouragement or helping and serving, showing mercy or organizing and administrating, those are still valid gifts, and we see them in Scripture. And their responsibility is to make sure that they're hearing from these others who have the gift of speaking and preaching and teaching. That's how they work together. They work in tandem to do the work of ministry. So I think the next question is really, how do we know if we're doing this well? Are we doing it properly? Are we really unified? Are we all using our gifts? Do we know what our gifts are? Well, I think there's some proofs that we can see in verses 14 to 16. Before we we look at those verses, though, I want to just say, as I was studying this passage, that it kind of reminded me of a cookie sandwich. I'm really big on cookies this morning, aren't I? But the first six verses kind of talk about unity, and it was described for us. It was giving us a portrait of what that unity looked like. Then verses 7 through 11 talked about the diversity of our gifts. And then verses 12 to 16 go back to unity. And I think that's really cool that unity, okay, we'll say those are the cookies, and the cream in the middle is the gifts. It kind of keeps the sandwich together. I don't know if that helps you, but it helped me think about the passage and how it's talking about diversity in unity in the body and how we are to display that unity by using the diversity of our gifts. So how do we know that we're doing this well? Well, I think it has to do with verse 13, that we've attained unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God by maturity. We see a picture of steadfastness, of being an adult in the faith. Verse 14, so that you may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and every wind of doctrine. We know that we're doing this well if there's that picture of maturity. Again, going back to those five gifts given in this passage speaks clearly to the fact that if they're doing their job well, they're teaching God's word. And so if we're hearing God's word and we can discern truth, every individual in the body, you won't be tossed to and fro by different ideas. You'll know what is truth and will not be deceived by human cunning or craftiness of deceitful schemes. It's also possible that Paul knew that someone in the Ephesian church was misusing their gifts. Maybe they were abusing the gift, and so they were wrongly teaching the Ephesians to deceive them. So that's where it's a collective responsibility, that if we're all using and listening to each other as we use our gifts, we're going to be able to recognize that and call out false doctrine for what it is because we're using our gifts as God has gifted to us. But not only do we demonstrate our unity through maturity and steadfastness, but we also demonstrate our unity by the interworking of the gifts. And we've talked about this some. Look at verse 15. It says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. This kind of reminds me of verse 2, 
when it talks about humility, gentleness, patience, loving forbearance. And really what it's saying here is as we speak the truth in love, we can call out those spiritual gifts in one another. And so maybe we see someone who's confused about their giftedness. Maybe it's out of fear that they're neglecting them or in pride someone is abusing them. We can speak the truth in love to call that out. And the only way that we can do this is by keeping Jesus Christ as central to the mission of the church. It's not something we do in and of ourselves, but it's because the Spirit of God, who has called us and he's given us these gifts, we therefore can call that out to each other in Christ. Why? Because he is the head of the body. And the body is joined together by every joint with which it is equipped. Again, just like you need each ingredient in a recipe in the right amount, mixed in the right way, that's how you're going to come out with a good cookie to eat. It's the same with the body of Christ. And here's kind of the concluding result. That when each part is working properly, that part makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. God's design for the church, for us, we are the body of Christ. It is to demonstrate unity to the world as an expression of love. That's what verse 16 says, so that it builds itself up in love, and that becomes a picture of unity to the world. And so as I was thinking about being joined together, held together by every joint, a three-legged race came to mind. I was thinking, how, how do you win a three-legged race? It's really hard if you've ever done it as, as a kid. Um, and uh, I actually went on YouTube to try to find some videos to give me a few tips. How can I win a three-legged race? And I came across one video that gave me two tips. The first was you need a partner who's similar to you. The same height really helps out because then the length of your legs are about the same and you're supposed to be able to run in tandem with them a little bit better. So in one way, you have to be similar to your partner. But then secondly, you need to be different from your partner. They suggested if you're right-handed, you need a left-handed partner. That way it frees up both of your strong legs to run the race. I just found that interesting. I'm, I'm half tempted to actually call my wife up here because she's about the same height and I'm right-handed and she's left-handed. Should we should do a little three-legged race here? <laughs> we, we'd be the perfect pair, I'm sure. The winning combination, though, requires unity as well as diversity. Again, that unity of height and yet diversity of dexterity it's going to help you run that race and win it well. But if we're not doing that with our strengths in tandem, we might still cross the finish line, but it probably isn't in first place, and it might be dragging your partner <laughs> behind you. And so I think this is a good picture of how we can walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which we've been called.
let's run that three-legged race where we are using our gifts as a display of unity to the world. Let's pray. Father God, as we think about our giftedness in your Son, Jesus Christ, would you help us to discern what our gifts are and how you would have us use them? As we think about these different pictures of unity, I still think the best picture of unity is that you took people who were diametrically opposed, the Jews and the Gentiles, and you made them one. You do that in marriage where you take two individuals with separate identities and you give them a new identity, a merging of the two. And what a beautiful picture we have that the body of Christ is diverse in its giftedness. The hand is not the foot. The eye is not the ear. And together as we use the unique, the unique ways in which you have gifted us, we can grow together into Christ who is the head. To him be the glory this week as we desire to display that to the world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.